Mitch Greenhill has a book he recently wrote called Raised by Musical Mavericks, recalling life lessons from Pete Seeger, Lightning Hopkins, Doc Watson, Reverend Gary Davis, and others, and Mitch Greenhill is on the line. Mitch, welcome to WLRN. Thank you, Michael. Happy to be here. Well, first of all, thank you so much for writing this. It was such a joy reading, and it filled in a lot of blank spaces that I that I that I really am really curious about the uh, '60s folk revival. And you were right there, smack in the middle. You were there, uh, not in the Greenwich Village side, but on in the Boston, Massachusetts side. Right. Um, I mean, I spent a fair amount of time in the village, and actually, that's where I'm I'm am at the moment. Um, I think one of the big differences was that in uh, New York, if you were playing, oh, the Gaslight or the Bitter End or any of those clubs, there would always be in the back of your mind some idea that somebody important might be in the in the audience. You know, somebody from Columbia Records or, I mean, I think I think Bill Cosby had that gig at the at the Gaslight, and that's where he got his break. You know. Whereas in Boston, we uh, we knew there was going to be nobody particularly important, and so we could just, uh, I don't know, make mistakes without having to worry about it. I guess was was your intention to make it to Greenwich Village? Um, at the time, I you know was had a much more uh, art for art's sake and purity for purity's sake attitude. Although I always hoped that my devotion to the pure art would uh, somehow lead me to something bigger. Well, you certainly rub shoulders with things a lot bigger. You were a student at Harvard. Uh, you, you did graduate, right? I managed to graduate from there. I, actually, the, it's a funny thing. The people who came to uh, Boston to study at Boston University, they all dropped out. You know, Joan Baez, Jim Queskin, my first wife, Louise. And those of us who were in Harvard somehow managed to buckle down. Maybe it's because we were just across the street from the Club 47. I don't know. Um, but I don't know. I, uh, no matter how much I wanted to rebel against my parents, I was uh, the necessity of that uh, college education was uh, drilled into me too deep. So I figured I'd just, you know, work it out, work it through. First couple of years in college, or I guess in my sophomore year, I was considering more of an academic path. But you are a musician. Uh your father was a big influence on you. In fact, you grew up with a lot of musicians because your dad was in the business. When did he become a music promoter? My dad um, came up in the labor movement of New York City, and I think he got into the music that way. He heard the, the Almanac singers, Pete Seeger and Woody Guthrie and the gang coming up. As a matter of fact, he took some lessons from uh, Josh White who was the first major concert that he promoted was Josh White. Um, he was working an advertising business in, in Boston, meaning what would he do? He would represent the foreign language papers. And like one of my early jobs was calling up uh, people, cold calling people and saying, uh, uh, hey, the big Pulaski Day edition of the Polish Daily Courier is coming up. Uh, why don't you place an ad? And along the line, man, he started presenting little hoot, and I guess he called it late night hoots. He started presenting things in Harvard Square that would start at 11 or midnight. And then at, at a certain point, he decided to do something bigger. He wanted to present Pete Seeger in concert. 
And we that's the start of the company that that my son and I run today, Folklore Productions or Fly Artists, as we've recently rebranded. And it's hard to remember how, I don't know, informal the scene was in those days, but when Pete Seeger and Sonny Terry, who was performing with him, came to town to do that concert, they didn't stay in a hotel, they stayed with us in, in our spare bedrooms. And uh, I was 13 years old at the time, very impressionable, and these powerhouse musicians showed up, um, Pete and Sonny Terry later on, uh, Lydon Hopkins and Reverend Gary Davis, John Jacob Niles, a whole bunch of powerhouses, you know, forces of nature would just come through the place. And I was pretty much blown away and, and uh, blown blown in their, their updraft. How much, how much did your father have to do with Joan Baez's success? Quite a bit, I think. Um, he met Joan. Uh, I mentioned that he was, you know, politically conscious guy. He went to a meeting of, I think it was called Concerned Scientists Against Nuclear Bombs or something like that. And Joan's father, Al Baez, who was a physicist, was uh, speaking there. And uh, after he spoke or in the middle of his speech, he introduced his 16-year-old daughter to sing a couple of songs. And that's where Manny and Joan met. And then uh, maybe a year later, Al was, um, his, his gig at Boston University was over. He went on to another academic gig, but Joan had already started developing a bit of a following at the 47 in Boston. And so Al basically asked Manny to, you know, look after his teenage daughter. And uh, Manny managed Joan for 14, 15 years, including, you know, her her big initial successes, the cover of Time magazine, all the um, the concerts in the South that were the like the first integrated concerts in a lot of places. So yes, a very important, uh, very important part of our history. I'm talking to Mitch Greenhill. His latest book is raised by. Well, is, it, is it your only book? Is this your first book? This is my first book. This is it. Um, <laughs> but I, I have something else in the works. We'll find out. Raised by Musical Mavericks is Mitch's book, and we're talking about the folk revival of the 1960s because Mitch was there. And uh, I mentioned you fill in some of the blanks for me because I have this old album by Ralph Kahn and uh, Eric Von Schmidt, and I finally found out who Ralph Kahn is. Tell me who Ralph Kahn is. Ralph Kahn was a... God, how do I... Where do I start? He was he was a German Jew who had uh, escaped Germany uh, as Hitler was coming in there, although there was always these stories that he was uh, spying behind the lines for the Allies and whatnot. He came to America and became very interested in folk music and blues in particular. And then he st- when he, he was based in California, then when he came out to our place, uh, he stayed with us for most, actually it kind of was months, I think. And so I finally, uh, my family finally put him to work teaching me guitar. And I, uh, for a long time, I thought that this uh, quasi-German accent he had was how people spoke in the Mississippi Delta. Uh, it took me a while to kind of figure it out. But he was my um, my my first serious guitar teacher, even when he even when he moved out and and uh, set up shop in Cambridge. I would go there on the on the subway, and uh, you know taught me a lot about guitar and uh, was was a good mentor to me. One of my regrets, uh, I first started in radio in Tampa, 
And it was my first week at the station, volunteering, of course. And they said, you want to go to Sarasota, interview Eric Von Schmidt? And I chickened out. But Eric is a giant. Eric, it's a, it, it, he should be better known because of, of his wide scope of art that he does. I totally agree, and I don't know. I might have been at Saratoga that uh, that that winter. I was. I spent a couple of winters hanging out in in his neighborhood down there. He was, in addition to being a a powerful singer and guitarist, he was a painter of of renown. You know, he's painted large paintings. His his father, uh, Harold von Schmidt, was also widely exhibited. Did a lot of those Saturday evening post covers of, of Western life. A powerful guy, and actually, when Rolf and he started working, I, I, I eventually, and then Rolf left town. I eventually drifted over to and adopted Eric as my mentor. I think I was always looking for the older brother that I never had. He was, the, I think, the best man in my wedding. Now that I think about it, and um, and I produced wound up producing an album of his as things went on. Backed him up a lot of times at the Forty Seven. One of my favorite albums is uh, was it Second Row, Third Right, Wet Birds Don't Fly at Night is on there. It's that wasn't the album you produced, was it? Uh, no, I produced uh, Who Knocked the Brains Out of the Sky. the The one you're mentioning, I think, is the first album he did of all his own material. It's a great album, and also featured on that album is Jeff Mold Moldauer. Is that how you pronounce Jeff's last name? Moldor. Jeff Moldor, and he was another Boston folk singer that you became friendly with. Oh, Jeff and I were very tight. As a matter of fact, Jeff and, and Maria and my first wife, Louise, and I were a foursome. We would get together a couple of times a week to shoot the breeze, play music, see, see a concert who was, who was around there. Uh, Jeff was a more um, strict mentor than, than Eric. He, you know, he had very... And probably still does has very strong ideas of what is good, what isn't, and uh, if if you fall on the wrong side of that line, you're going to hear about it in no uncertain terms. And he had the you know the uh, the knowledge and the chops to back it up. Mitch Greenhill is on the line. His book is called "Raised by Musical Mavericks." Uh, Jeff Moldauer, along with Jim Queskin, uh, became very popular with the Jug Band. It seems like America. In the 50s, there was the Calypso music that Harry Belafonte made popular, and then uh, the Kingston Trio with the, the folk music, and then the jug band music became very popular. Why, did, why weren't you in a jug band? Uh, there's a good question. I don't know. Uh, I actually filled in for, for Queskin on the, uh, in that jug band when it, uh, in the 80s when Tom Rush was running his... Uh, his Symphony Hall New Year's concerts. So I guess that was my chance. Uh, I don't know. I, I hung out with those guys quite a bit. Jeff always used to, I think at one point, some interviewer once asked uh, Jeff, why why are you playing uh, good time music? And he said, well, if we lived in good times, we'd play bad time music. <laughs> but it's amazing. I mean, how surprised were you that the Jug Band became as popular as they did? Uh, we were always surprised when somebody from our little niche of the uh, stratosphere managed to soar. Um, and yeah, I remember we, we were really excited when they uh, when they were on the Tonight Show, I think, or one of those things. I also remember hanging out with them in in California. I think I had just moved to California, and they were on the Pat Boone Show, and uh, so I hung out with them there. And 
was shocked to see Pat Boone smoking a cigar. Didn't really fit his image. Oh, that's great. So we have the jug band music, and they, I, think, I guess the Beatles knocked the jug band and folk music out of the charts at all. Uh, do you remember the first time you heard the Beatles? I think, as with most everybody else, I heard them on the Ed Sullivan show that time, and you know, I thought they were, you know, really good. It kind of surprised me how how good they were. There were so the there were so many divisions. I mean, it seems like back in the '60s, the folk musicians there were real radical folk musicians, and there were, it's like the New Law City Ramblers represented the real traditional folk, and and Dylan upset the whole thing at the at the at bringing rock and roll into it. Did, were you? Where did you stand in that kind in that line of what what is folk music? I was always pretty receptive to the um, to the electrical end of things. I've, I've always found it a little odd that in the purest folk music circles, an electric bass is considered an acoustic instrument, but a trap drum set is not. It just doesn't kind of make sense now, does it? The I was in the uh, I was at the Newport Folk Festival when Dylan went electric uh didn't sound that i was a little disappointed in the sound actually i'd i'd uh you know i'd been very interested in the paul butterfield band that with that summer uh matter of fact uh, from when they started when i went out to to uh, chicago to see some friends and hopefully get into university of chicago um is when i first heard butterfield and nick gravinitis and I mean, Michael Bloomfield is just a superb player, and, and he and I became pretty close. Um, as I say, the the Dylan thing at Newport did not knock me out, um, but it didn't offend me. I mean, I, I I think we forget that Dylan already had a a record out that summer. It wasn't a Positively Fourth Street or one of his early r- records, so. To me, I wasn't at all surprised that he showed up with an electric band. I was like, that's what was on the radio. Why, why wouldn't he? Um, but as I say, I thought it was, it sounded kind of messy. The, although I've heard, uh, I've heard a cleaned up version recently and it sounds pretty good. So maybe, maybe I was in a wrong head on the, at the time. Mitch Greenhill's new book is called Raised by Musical Mavericks, uh, primarily because your dad was in the business and, and he, introduced you to some really incredible artists from uh, Lightning Hopkins and Pete Seeger and uh, other artists who, who who slept in your house. I, I imagine they slept over your house to, to save money so your dad could make more money on the concerts he was presenting. I suppose. I We didn't, you know, at that point I was a teenager. I didn't really, I wasn't dealing in the, in the bookkeeping with it at all. I hadn't really thought about it. There were, it was... Um, it was also kind of more of a family scene. You know, I remember Reverend Davis would, first place, you know, Reverend Davis is blind, you know, so putting him in a hotel is problematic in a sense. And then he would, being a blind man, he wouldn't let the guitar out of his hands. So then he sat on our living room couch and just played for hours, whereas I would be soaking it up. My dad actually fronted the money for that guitar. He had, he was, he got a call from the music store downtown and, proprietor was saying this old guy here playing the guitar he won't let it go he says he says you're good for it you know so my dad did front the five hundred dollars for that uh miss gibson as reverend davis called it and then in the mornings you know he would uh he would ask my mom to sanctify his coffee uh, meaning pouring a, a little of the spirit into it 
You mentioned in your book the first time you had gin was because who, who was it who turned you on to gin? And does your I'm dad know about that? No, it was Lightning Hopkins did it, and no, my dad didn't know about. I had I had just gotten my driver's license, and uh, my job was to drive Lightning Hopkins around to a couple of concerts he did in New England. One of them was down at Yale University. And on the way back, uh, he made uh, quick use of a bottle of gin, and I, I have to admit, I helped a little bit. <laughs> so did what happened to you? Did it turn you? Did it, uh, how did, did that affect you? Um, certainly being with Lightning affected me. He was a powerful musician and a powerful force. Uh, I, I haven't really kept up my, uh, my taste for gin. <laughs> But that's um, but you were thrust into an adult world. Here you are, a kid, and you're you, you. I'm sure you came across a lot of situations that other kids did not come across. This is this is true, and I, I think I uh, probably didn't handle it all that well. My my way of handling it was to pretend I knew more than I did, and you know I probably got caught out a few times because I didn't know nothing. Basically, I was just hanging on for dear life. But the uh, the musicians were always, for the most part, were always really protective and, and helpful for me. You know, you mentioned the uh, the Kingston Trio and their their hit song was Tom Dooley that one year in fifty whatever it was. But then when when we started working with Doc Watson, you know, he actually knew the families there and he had strong opinions on what happened to Tom Dula. He he knew that uh, you know somebody had confessed on her deathbed. It was it happened down the road a piece from where he lived. So that was a um, a level of intimacy with the music. Uh, you know that, that was hardwired for him, and that that was a learning experience. Did the Kingston Trio in in your folk circles were were they too commercial for you? Um, I guess when they first came out, it was kind of exciting. But uh, you know, pretty soon we moved on to what seemed more serious fare, and more real stuff. Speaking about serious fare, I mean, a lot was going on in the '60s, from the Vietnam War and the March on Washington and the assassinations. You were at the March of Washington. Yeah, I think everybody in our family was there. I had actually spent a couple of weeks earlier that summer uh, helping voter registration drive in Cambridge, Maryland. Uh, Gloria Richardson, I think, was the name of the of the leader at that time, which was, I think it was a core a Congress of Racial Equality thing. And then we got to, we got the March on Washington. Yeah, everybody had to be there August, what, 28th, 1963, I think it was. I, at that point, was much more interested in hearing what John Lewis had to say. And after he spoke, which I gather he had, had to tone down his remarks, and I had been up all night because I had been hitchhiking there. I got a ride with these five guys in a big black Cadillac and a bottle of four roses. And I was kind of out of it at that point. So I kind of drifted off at a certain point. So I, I have to take everybody's word for it that Martin Luther King gave a pretty good speech there because I didn't hear it. Mitch Greenhill is on the line. Raised by Musical Mavericks is his book. It's It's such an enjoyable read. And eventually, you uh, went into your father's business. Was that a tough decision? It was a little bit. I was uh, kind of committed to being uh, being the being 
on the creative side, performing and writing songs and whatnot. Um, but it wasn't going very well. I was in 1976. I found myself playing in a playing top 40 music at a lounge in East Boston. I had been to California, moved back. I had had a, a happening band in California, and that broke up, and just didn't seem like there was uh, much moving forward. Manny was going through a bit of a crisis, or it seemed to me, because uh, Baez had left him. And so uh, I felt I could help him out. I think he was feeling he could help me out. And so we decided to try it out for a year. I, I came in as, I think I was the musical director of the company for a year. And uh, so I, first thing I did was I started transcribing Doc Watson guitar solos, which was pretty um, educational because the, the Library of Congress was being rather strict at that time on copywriting your versions of traditional songs. So I had to kind of prove that there was original material going on there. But then at a certain point, I started uh, booking. I think I booked, first thing I booked was a tour by Tom Paley, uh, who had been in the New Lost City Ramblers. And um, gosh, it's amazing. As soon as you start booking, people start returning your phone calls. And, uh, you know, there was a little more uh, status to the thing. And so I just kind of went with it. And, and then, of course, when I guess the, th the key thing for me was when Merle Watson asked me to uh, help him as he was producing an album and having some problems with it. And so I wound up producing several albums for the Watsons and that was like a dream come true. I'd always just loved their music and respected them a bunch and to get into the Nashville scene a little bit. You have, you, you have a Doc Watson project coming up? Well, I'm, I'm one of the executive producers of uh, something called I am a pilgrim, Doc Watson at 100. As we speak now, um, it's available as digital downloads and God willing, we're gonna get some CDs and vinyl before too long. It's the, uh, this uh, 2023 is Doc's, the hundredth anniversary of Doc's birth. So we, uh, on, on our fledgling record company, my son Matt and I started a record label in the middle of the pandemic, I guess, because we were looking for something to do. It seems like a, a silly thing to do in a certain way because nobody even has CD players anymore. But uh, we did. We put out a few albums. Uh, the Campbell Brothers uh, tribute to Coltrane's Love Supreme. We put out a Doc and Rural instrumental album. Put out Dave Van Ronk's Peter and Jug Band version of Peter and the Wolf. But then with this uh, tribute album, it's funny you start asking people do they want to participate in a Doc Watson tribute album and. Dolly Parton says, sure. Roseanne Cash says, okay. And Bill Frizzell says, yes. And uh, and then some younger people, Valerie June and Critter from the Punch Brothers. So it's actually quite a, an array of artists on our our little, uh, as we like to call it, boutique label. And uh, I'm, I'm getting a crash course in the in the world of streaming and, and algorithms, which is kind of how it all works these days in the what passes for a record business. It sounds like you're excited about it. I am. It's. Uh, I'm, I think the record is a really good record, and it's. Uh, and I certainly like the idea of paying tribute to Doc. I think uh, he deserves all he can get. Mitch Greenhill is on the line, and uh, before we uh, finish up, I don't want to, because because this Doc Watson album is new, but uh, we're talking about folklore productions. That's a company your father started, and it's now Fly International. 
Fly artists. Uh, Fly is a, uh, in addition to sounding hip, is a uh, acronym for Folklore International, and uh, that's because of your son's influence. Yes, exactly, and um, it also turned out that especially that some of the artists, especially some of the African artists, they like that better. It seems so. We're we're, we're working with it, although you know, folklore productions still exists. It's the you know it's our legal name. DBA is FLI. One of my favorite concerts, I used to produce concerts before I had this radio show. This helped The concerts helped me get this job. But one of my favorite concerts, I, I believe I dealt with you. Uh, I, I produced Dave Van Ronk here in South Florida, talking about an underrated artist. And you wouldn't know it, but the guy is an incredible singer. I, I was just so blown away by Dave Van Ronk's show. Yeah, he's, he had described himself as a cabaret singer, which I think is... Pretty accurate. Matter of fact, there's. Um, I was just involved with uh, or kind of kibitzing on uh, Mike Regenstreif's radio show. He did a show on the uh, on music of Bertolt Brecht, and featured um, an album that I had almost forgotten about: Dave Van Ronk and Frankie Armstrong singing uh, Kurt Weill and Bertolt Brecht songs. Um, and I think you know that's I think his meat and potatoes right in that kind of. Uh, half uh, half sarcastic half sincere world and uh, he if you if you approach his blues in that fashion i think it makes it makes sense and he was a wonderful wonderful cat and but we just my wife and i just had dinner with his widow andrea last night and we we keep very much in touch you never uh, slept on his couch in greenwich village did you i did oh for sure <laughs> <laughs> i was uh, i think i was Playing on, he did an album called "Songs for Aging Children" that I was that I play on, and I, during that time, I I certainly slept on that famous couch. Mitch Greenhill, his book is called "Raised by Musical Mavericks." Uh, are, are you surprised you well, I, I, you've lasted this long? You, I mean, we're, we're all this is a generation that's disappearing, Mitch, and uh, uh, is is that why you wrote the book? Kind of. Um, I had these kind of stories that I would tell every now and then at, uh, after the pint or two, and uh, people kept saying, well, you should write this stuff down. So eventually I got started on it, and uh, it was a little harder than I thought. You know, it's a little uh, more challenging to put stuff in a, in a structured form than, uh, than shooting the breeze in the, in the bar at night. Um, but as soon, at a certain point, I kind of found the voice, and uh, I said, "Okay, whatever I do from here on in, I'll just want to hold on to that." And I wound up in, enjoying the process. You know, they say that all writing is rewriting, and I think that's quite true. And it got to the point where, you know, I would enjoy getting back in there. I finished it up during the pandemic. The pandemic was very helpful in that in that regard. So I'm working right now on a, I guess it's a novel. Um, about similar similar stuff set in the music world and um i've kind of created these characters that, and i see them as kind of my imaginary friends so i just kind of like to go hang out with them a while see what they're going to come up with i was going to mention some names that are probably now obscure but you're you're intimate with these folks but cisco houston did you know meet cisco houston oh yeah he stayed at our house a number of times he and my mom became pretty good friends. I remember he was staying there 
just a few months before he died, he was already pretty sick and frail and um, surprising. He still was a great looking guy at that point, even though he was going down. And a guy who was very committed politically, um, you know, of, of Woody's, Woody Guthrie's um, compatriots, he was, he and Pete were probably the most committed politically to what the struggle that was involved there. Another artist who just released a, a, a composition album a little while ago was Barbara Dane. I believe she lives out on the West Coast. Yeah, I was kind of in touch with her not that long ago. She and actually, she and Ralph Kahn had been married actually at a way back when, and they have a son, uh, Jesse, who is who's taken a different political path, I think. Barbara, my friend uh, Judith Schombaum kind of works as an amanuensis to Barbara, who is still in you know pretty good shape, feisty at 95 years old and you know, carrying the banner. Mitch Greenhill is on the line. One last thing. I think I read in your book. Did you see Paul Robeson perform? That was my first concert. You know, I was maybe five years old. We had been, we were living in Brooklyn and my mom, I remember we got on the subway and we got out and out of the subway in Manhattan. There was lots of cars. It was kind of scary. And then we entered the concert hall. I don't know where it was, maybe town hall. I remember we were in the balcony and I remember it as a safe place. And then uh, Robeson came out on the stage. It was a children's concert. He was doing kids songs like Shortening Bread. And, and uh, I remember his his voice just seemed to envelop me and, and everybody else in the place. And uh, I, I, that was kind of where I kind of first had the the feeling that, oh, this I need to get inside this music. There's something really um, wonderful going on there, and I, and I want to be inside it. I want to be part of that. Mitch Greenhill, raised by musical Mavericks, recalling life lessons from Pete Seeger, Lightning Hopkins, Doc Watson, Reverend Gary Davis, and others. It, like I mentioned, it was... Such a fun read, and uh, seeing the, all the names in there that I've I've known for years, and, and and filling in details. Mitch, thank you for writing this book. Oh, thank you. Appreciate your interest.